1: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, Mm. brothers or something like that, and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best.
0: Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these
1: magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies or shepherds. Yep. So, if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All
0: right. So, now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution?
1: Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So, what about we get one sent here to Australia. Right. And you'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs.
0: Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear,
1: all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ainswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed
0: himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars.
1: All that Training devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able to get that from Ainswick because you're going to be here in Australia.
0: Well, that means that you have to go up. North, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep.
1: And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. yeah, yeah. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics yep. if I'm in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland, as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. While and- you're sipping. Cafe lattes. Just just gallivanting all over. Gallivanting. (laughs) Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back to another edition of the Canine Paradigm. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. This might be our last Zoom for a while. We might actually be able to be in real life next week. Well, that would be
0: a blessing so we can stop having to try and fix all this choppy internet business that we are constantly seem to be having and <laughs> plagued by.
1: <laughs> the ritual of every before every episode. Can you see me? Does that work? Oh, fuck. Let me change networks. Does that work now? No. Oh, fuck. Okay. Every goddamn time.
0: The other thing that happens too is when I talk sometimes and if you're talking or either one of us, if we have a joint conversation, it will muffle you out. So it will actually drench your volume. So it literally cuts it right, right back. Sometimes I can do a pretty good job of resurrecting it. And other times you can just hear that it's total volume loss in that happen. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to not having to do that anymore. That would be wonderful. That will be good. Plus, it's always nice to have visitors and have people come and hang out, have a coffee. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, it is. I'm excited
1: to drive more than five kilometres from my house. Yeah, me too. So, we got asked a question in the discussion group today, Mm. and we thought... That instead of answering in there, maybe it would be a good conversation, a good topic for a whole podcast of its own. So I won't give the person's name because it happened in a group. So maybe they don't want this public information, but I'll say, hi, everyone. I've re-listened to the episode and I can find on personal dog death. Admittedly, I'm new to the podcast and I'm struggling with the loss of the dog that made me a trainer. Specifically, I'm looking for ideas, thoughts on the imposter syndrome that comes with not having a personal dog anymore. Also, any help on how to interact with clients. It feels weird to use him as an example for stories, but mentioning it just seems like a mega unnecessary bummer. Also, tips on how to just keep going. understand it's different per the individual, but I'd love to hear your personal stories if you are willing. I think there's definitely a lot to talk about there.
0: There is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there is a lot to talk about in that discussion, definitely. Losing the dog is definitely a topic that so many dog owners around the world will have a kinship with. I was actually thinking about this the other day because you know how Facebook memories always brings up random memories of Mm -hmm. three, four, five, six, seven, whatever, how many years ago? The other day, it brought up a memory of my first French bulldog that Narelle and I got, a little dog named Quincy. And- I just wanted to talk about that because this topic suddenly sparked memories of him. Although I had a lot of great memories with him and he was a really fun little dog, he was the first Frenchie we ever had. I trained him to do a hold and bark on the sleeve. He'd come in and bite a hard sleeve, let go. He was quite a drivey little dog. Alas, like a lot of Frenchies, he did have some health problems. That's pretty much what got him in the end. He had a spinal issue, very similar to what Ladybug has. Mm -hmm. We raced him to the vet spent an absolute small fortune on him and still lost him anyway. The reason I'm bringing this up is that still to this day, I'm looking at his ashes sitting over on the wall unit now in the podcast room, and still even to this day, that's one of the most painful memories I have of losing a dog, even to the point where I can't watch the entire videos when I see them on Facebook and so forth because I just break down bawling every time I see it. And I don't know what it is. I know I just love that little dog. I absolutely adored him. I miss him terribly. He was one of the dogs that we brought up from Victoria to New South Wales when we moved up here. He was just a real awesome little dog. He had a lot of heart. He had a lot of soul. Uh, He was very, very easy to train. He loved training. Anything we were doing, he was just Right into it. Couldn't wait to do anything. Had good food drive, had good prey drive, had a good attitude for a Frenchie. He was just a really fun little dog. He fit in with other dogs. That bust me up. It really busts me up. Even to the point where up until now I haven't really talked about him or told Quincy's story. So not many people know about him because when he died it was sort of like I tried to forget him. And I know that sounds awful and some people might challenge me on that and say, well, that sounds really fucked up. But – it wasn't that I wanted to forget him. It was just that I didn't want to feel the hurt I still feel to this day. Like I still feel it now. It's punishing. I've tried to suppress it for a long time, but I thought, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I don't know why I'm so cut up about it. It is a shit thing that some dogs just really get under your skin. And working here at pet resorts and working at boarding kennels, we've had very longstanding relationships with people And in the 11 years that I've been here, I've seen dogs from their puppyhood into very old age dogs. Some of those dogs have come and gone in that time. So we've had customers that have been fiercely loyal customers who the only reason they don't come back is because they don't have a pet anymore. And they're suffering the same issue that I've suffered over Quincy. And as there have been many other people in life who have had a very, very similar experience, but it doesn't mean that we entirely lose touch with them because sometimes they'll get another pet when they're ready and they'll come back or sometimes they might be driving past and some of them are just beautiful people. Like there's people who just drop in presents to the girls or some of them will bring in, you know, a bag of oranges or something random like that. as a <laughs> It's just a love gift though. It's, I'm still in the area, I'm here, and we all knew each other for such a long time because we did. We had a relationship. It's a hard one. It's a hard one for many people who are going through that sort of thing. And I mean, we've even had to be there and make those decisions for and with families when it's time for their dog. Some dogs have come here and people have been worded up that because of the age of their dog and the health of their dog, this could be a problem for them, which unfortunately they're in desperate situations. They understand that. And sometimes the gamble doesn't pay off. And sometimes the dog will pass while it's here. Nothing nefarious Mm. is going on. We, uh, pretty much the second home for that dog it's a comfortable environment for the dog and it's something that we do a lot of old age monitoring and care for dogs in those sort of situations but we've had to make the decision for people before totally consulting with them like they're aware of what's going on but it's a very difficult process not just for the owners of the dog I mean they have extra levels of care and love for that dog but the staff still love and care for that dog as well so it's tough because the staff are brokenhearted and then the owners are definitely brokenhearted because they're losing family. So yes, losing the dog is a tough one. We've done episodes on that where we've talked about it before. I've known so many people over a long period of time where I've seen them go through one, two, even three, four dogs where they've they've lost their first, second, third or fourth dog. Can't be in this industry as long as I haven't not know a lot of people and see that their dogs rise and fall because the saddest thing about owning a dog is just the short lifespan we have in comparison to them. It's not like, mm. you know, they just hang around w- with us for the rest of our life. It's always wonderful on the flip side of that to see the celebration and the love, even during the times of loss that people have and the hurt, the terrible and awful deep hurt that people feel during that time. It still is an absolutely beautiful and wondrous thing to watch the celebration of a loved companion that nobody thought of as just my dumb dog or anything like that, but it's something cherished and something so amazing. Being a part of that and sharing that journey with people, it means that the dog didn't die in vain, you know, like there was no terrible life. Like in the last episode, you were talking about some of the village dogs and how miserable their life can be. When we were discussing the welfare of dogs during the episode of talking about a world without tools. There are so many fortunate dogs, regardless of their training methodologies or anything, there are so many loved and cherished dogs that live in my house and your house. And probably thousands of our listeners are in exactly the same situation where there's dogs sitting at their feet right now or sitting in the car with them while they're on the way to work or traveling around listening to this podcast or doing whatever they're doing. There is just a myriad of really well-loved and a dog that is just sharing such a valuable relationship in everybody's life. They understand mm. exactly what we're talking about. They understand exactly where that question is going, where the person is talking about it. I'm not going to monopolize this entire discussion. I'm interested in what you think as well.
1: Oh, man, I haven't had to say goodbye to a dog for a long time. So I'm convinced that Valerie will live to be 20 at least. <laughs> and um, every day I wake up and Remy's alive, I'm surprised. You know, I don't know how much longer. I have with my dogs but i cherish every day last week actually one of my closest friends had to put his dog down she reached her end of life she was 13 she was golden retriever and kind of yeah couldn't walk essentially got to the point where couldn't get up one day and kneecap like knee problems and all kinds of stuff and he messaged us he said it in a you know it's a group chat and he sent a message saying that you know dog's name was maya uh, and that he unfortunately had to put her to sleep and, Man, I spent a long time reflecting on that dog's life because she's 13. She's lived with him for 13 years. And in that time, he had at least three long-term partners that he lived with. He was in the army for a period and was a reserve for a period and also works as a contractor all over the world. And so he would be gone for long periods of time and the dog would stay with other people he went through phases of his life where he was you know at university and was a prim and proper kind of dude and then he he lived in a bus in the woods for a while with just him and the dog he's lived in cities he'd lived on beaches like literally on the beach a lot of his life had really changed a lot over that 13 years and this dog had just come on the ride with him and when we were discussing it that dog had dozens of people that loved her like she was their own dog there are a lot of people that are really upset about her passing. But man, I I was upset initially. I was like, yeah, you know, that's sad that she's gone. And I hadn't seen her in, you know, 6 months or more because he lives a few hours away and, you know, with we the lockdown and everything, I hadn't been down there in a while. But I was thinking, what a fucking full life that dog had, mm. right? You know, not a premature death. I think that can be one of the hardest things for people is when their dog has a premature death. But also, I don't think it's any easier when the dog is older. I don't know that that's any easier to, you know, have along with the dog. You can be even more connected to them. And then you're often then faced with the idea of you have to choose the moment. Sometimes when a dog has a premature death, it's out of your hands. And that can almost not be better but it's different from the idea of you having to make the call one day you know like i think that's one of the hardest things when a dog grows old is having to make that decision one day and we had that certainly with jane's old dog ernie he had good days and bad days you know and on a bad day you'd think oh he's you know he was 17 or something crazy not 17 he would be 15 and on the bad days you go like yeah this is you know we need to put him out of his misery but then you know, later that day, that bad day turns into a good day, and you start thinking, like, oh, look, he's okay. And then it, you know, it gets down from like bad days and good days to good and bad hours and stuff like that. Like, I think we certainly, we probably should have put him to sleep earlier than we did. I think we kept him around longer for ourselves because we didn't want to do that. So, yeah, I think it's a hefty thing, but I, I think, like, on the topic of just losing a dog, grieving is super important, but also, to, you know, to acknowledge the happiness and the joy in the dog's life, not just sort of think about your own loss and how much you'll miss the dog, you know, whatever happens to you after you go, whether you're a dog or not, like the idea that the dog will miss you. But I think the celebration of the dog's life, because the type of people that tend to listen to, you would be listening to us probably do have interesting the dogs have interesting backstories right because maybe they are a rescue and you you know who knows what situation they were in prior to that and who knows the kind of life your dog lived prior to coming to you and then there's people like me who i got to send a picture of remy the moment he was born and i went and saw him when he was like three weeks old and then again when he was six weeks old and then he was mine he came to live with me when he was eight weeks old and you know like you could be involved right from the start and there's there's interesting things about your dog as well that you don't always know like i remember one time telling your kennel text out there we were talking about just dogs in general and i was like oh, i could never live with a dirty dog I, I can't stand dogs that like piss and shit in their kennel and they, <laughs> i'm sure we've talked about this before mm. and they looked at me incredulously and were like your fucking dog is the worst dog in the kennel he has a poo party every day i was i was mortified i was horrified and i remember looking at him thinking like i don't know that about you like, I thought I knew everything about you, man. Like, you live with me. We're, we're almost never apart. He's asleep right now at my feet. We're almost never not together, except when you're here at these kennels when I'm traveling. And when he's there, he's a different dog. He has, like, a different routine. He he acts differently. So there's depths of character to dogs that we I don't know that we're always aware of. But, yeah, I think that, like, on the topic of losing that dog, I feel like, you know, it, it can be a little bit of a cliche, but I think that the idea is to – celebrate the life of the dog rather than sort of you have to mourn you have to but i think part of mourning should include that remembering what a full life the dog had because chances are like i say if you're listening to this you probably did provide your dog a pretty awesome and full life and i think one of the things that you know like i I think of it with my dogs especially when i look at the family they're in like It's pretty amazing for dogs. They get to watch kids grow up. They get to watch that kind of dynamic. When we got Remy, Rip was a little baby and now they've grown up together. You know, they're sort of the same age and Valerie's watched, you know, she was around before Rip and she's watched this new baby turn up and watched him turn into a little person and now she's getting to watch him do the same thing again with another one. So like, I feel like there's a lot more that goes on between the ears of the dog than we really give them credit for and there's a lot like on kind of a spiritual level they they become this huge part of your your family and they they see you at your best and I think your dog sees you at your worst as well because you don't really you know you might have a shit day or or you know whatever could be going wrong in your life and you hide it from the world and at home you're sort of in your private time you think no one's watching and that's where you, you know, you let it out or whatever, but your dog's watching, man. Your dog sees all that shit. And so your dog probably knows you better than anybody really, because nobody hides their emotions from their dog when they're at home. So yeah, that's what I kind of think on that. I think on the topic of losing a dog, for me, I think about celebrating that dog's life and thinking about the cool things that they did and the partnership that you had with them throughout and, you know, thinking on that fondly. And and of course you're upset that you're not going to have any more adventures, but for the dog, they had a fuck ton, man. Like Mm. they, they probably got their fill.
0: We had to put Max down the other day, who was one of our working shepherds. His kennel name was Alex Zuden Groenbergen. He was a dog, a German shepherd known throughout the working community in Australia. He's been used quite a lot as a stud dog and there was a difficult decision i'm still <laughs> i'm still struggling with that one to be honest because he made it to his 10th birthday but there was some things that were starting to i could start to see some mental decline happening in him he was becoming very unclear in his decision making and i was struggling with that like the girls were coming to me and saying there's some things you need to understand about what's happening with max I didn't want to be the one to arrogantly say, no, there's no problem because I trust the girls and they observe behavior in the dogs quite a lot. And I saw him start to do some things which were questionable towards the end. And I started to realize the more time that I spent with him because I wanted to spend more time with him being that I knew things were coming to a closure and I could start to see that, like they said, his decision-making wasn't terribly good. Like even the things that he was doing with me, I thought that's questionable. Like his behavior is now questionable. The safety of him around other people is now questionable. But it wasn't only that. Like he had some health problems towards the end as well. Like he had difficulty. He had a sphincter problem where he couldn't poo properly without medication. And he had to be on a fiber diet, a very high fiber diet. So Narelle was helping with things like that. The girls were just tirelessly looking after him like – It wasn't terrible, but we could start to see the decline happening. Like he'd been checked out by the vets and the vets were primarily saying to us, things are coming to a conclusion. here. You have to understand that. Like his days are coming up. Once I started realising that there were some problems with his behaviour and I think maybe they were related. I think that the health issues that he was having were also affecting his cognition as well at the same time. I could start to see some senility coming through in him and... At that stage, I knew he's very unsafe to be around, even where I had to question it myself, where I thought, I don't think that he is making good judgment calls. That was hurting me more than anything else because he'd always been a very clear dog, a dog that I had a long relationship with him. We had him since he was three. He made it to 10. So we've had him for seven years. He was an imported dog from Germany, brought in by another guy called Dave, who we brought him from. He's been with us ever since. You know him, you've worked him, you've done a lot of work with him. We fixed up a lot of bite issues with him in the early days, had a good fun with him. We were using him on decoy training workshops. He loved it all, like he just adored it. He'd come into NDTF groups, lots and lots of students got to give him bites. Very, very safe dog in those environments. You know, like I could let him do a, a sleeve bite with a student, then let him run round. He'd run back up to them and push the sleeve at them. And he really enjoyed the entire process. But you could see that fade of cognition in him towards the end. It wasn't the same dog anymore. There were times where it was him and there were other days where you could see he wasn't entirely there, like there was some shift in dynamics there. Primarily what I'm describing is I'm describing the the toughness that people have to come to that conclusion at the end, like how long does it go on for and how long do you make it persevere for because you're feeling the pain of it which I was, and I mean, I know the staff were as well, but it wasn't just a decision that I made. It was the decision that we made together, even though it was an uncomfortable decision and it, even though it sucked, it was still a decision from love and compassion and celebration of a dog that we all thought was a magnificent beast of a man. Nonetheless, he didn't live a life of trauma and regret. He lived a life, he lived a good life. He lived a life of love. He had a lot of people that loved him. Um, a lot of staff members that loved him, a lot of people that knew him that also once they'd seen that he'd passed had um, said, I remember him, you know, like he was on my course and it was nice that I got to spend time with him. So I'm grateful that Max was a celebrated dog. I'm grateful that He had a fulfilled life. I'm grateful for that. He's got some fantastic sons and daughters around Australia and even in New Zealand, I believe. And Ben Dawson, he's got a son of his as well. He he sent a message. He was cut up to hear about it. He was very sad about it. It's something that we're all going to go through. While I am talking about it, though, I did want to extend appreciation to my staff for looking after him so well and for caring for him and for being there with him at the end. That was remarkable how blessed he was to have people, like I said, that cared so deeply for him, that celebrated everything in his life, not just the best of it, but also the worst of it as well. The unsettling part of having to put him to sleep at the end, it was all done so beautifully. And so you couldn't ask for it for a better way with people cuddling him and rubbing his ears and everything like that until he slowly drifted off. It was a lovely life and it was a lovely ending for him as well. I just wanted to say how much I appreciated that dog and thank him for the time
1: that he gave us. You know, i got a big imagination. I imagine Max in the processing line, right? Like to go wherever. And yeah, the dog in front says like, hey man, what's your name? He goes, uh, well, a lot of people call me Max, but on the paperwork it was Alex. But what was his? Alex Zuden-Greuenberken. <laughs> okay, so yeah. he says, oh, yeah, that's what's on my paperwork. Oh, how come they call you Max? Oh, it's just, you know, it's a name. It's a fancy, like they've got a fancy pedigree. Oh, fancy pedigree. Yeah, I was born in Germany. I'm from a very special German Shepherd bloodline. Oh, so you lived in Germany your whole life? No, 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 no. When I was about three years old, I moved to Australia, or two years old, I moved to Australia. Oh, stayed with a the family there. No, I stayed with a guy for a little while, and we did some work, and then I, I went to a school where I, I trained people in how to train dogs. Really? He says, Yeah. And he looks at the guy and he says, Yeah, I taught loads of people how to get bitten by to get bitten by dogs. Yeah, that was my job. I, I bit people and I taught them how to teach other dogs to get bitten. Right. Okay. Where <laughs> How many owners did you have there? Oh, I had multiple. I, I was in a kennel that had multiple staff that came through, had this wonderful life. So like that's how I like to imagine that shit, right? Like I imagine him telling the story of his life and it's this amazing thing. The dog in front goes like, Oh, it was this old lady's lap dog. I sat on a lap. And it was good. Like, I loved her. She loved me. It was fine. <laughs> Max was like, oh, no, I changed countries. I changed houses. I bit people for a job. Like, to hurt them? Oh, no, not for real. I bit them in the suit and stuff. Like, I taught them how to train other dogs. And a lot of those people went on to then – teach other dogs that did bite people for real. Right. Oh, did you have any kids? Oh, hundreds. I've got hundreds of kids all over the country. And those kids have kids of their own. I haven't met any of them, but like, I've got hundreds of kids all over the place. Yeah. I've got a fancy pedigree. Lots of people know me. Like you can imagine that conversation he's having in the, in the dog processing line for whatever happens next after that. And I don't know, I know it's a stupid thing to sort of imagine, but for me, I feel like that gives me some solace when you imagine them reflecting on their life and thinking, yeah, I did a lot, man. I had a lot going on. I did a lot of cool stuff. And even though I was only around for 10 years, that's a long time. A lot of shit can get done in 10 years. I I matured. I went from being a tiny little puppy to a really old adult dog that was considered sort of a a patriarch of a whole bloodline within a country. There's, you know, there's working German shepherds within the country have been shaped by him. Right. There's Mm -hmm. a, like he's, yeah, he was used a fair bit, right? There's a lot of people that have Max' sons kicking around and have bred them and there's a lot working, there's a lot in pet homes, there's, you know, it's all over the place. So that's how I like to think about it anyway. Maybe I'm crazy.
0: No, I think it's great to have an active imagination in things like that and I also <laughs> feel that it's also beneficial to find comfort in whatever way comforts you. I think during one of our early episodes where we were talking about the pain and, and loss of losing a dog – Reflecting on all of this, I remember Ed Frawley, who is the proprietor of Learburg, writing about the little, I think it was a little silky terrier. It was a long time ago that he wrote this story, but he blogged about how he's been in powerful military and police working dogs and being a part of that culture for a long time. And he's seen the rise and fall of dogs that have meant a lot to him. And he's, you know, he shed a tear over, but the little house dog that he had, he expressed how much it absolutely broke his heart. And- to be I'm nearly bawling over it now because I absolutely blubbered reading that story about it. It was it was heartbreaking because I really could feel yeah. and understood the way that many people around the world would understand how difficult a time that is when you have that connection. And I mean, I've been exactly the same. Like I love Max and he was a great dog and I had a, a really befitting goodbye with him before he went. We played, we did some bite work, I got the sleeve out, I completely exhausted him and he loved a game but he was just absolutely fragged out and that was my send off with him. It was to do the one thing that he really, really loved and he got a lot out of was to play with his soccer ball and to give him a bite on the wedge. And that was my thank you to him and my time with him. And I did that personally. It was the night before we made the decision for him, but we had a really befitting send-off. And I feel some comfort in knowing that that was something that him and I used to do, you know, like if, if I put him away or if I'd go into the kennels, he was there. And even speaking, you know, like one of our senior staff, Lauren, I was speaking to her about it the other day because his ashes only – Just returned and his ashes are in the tea room where the girls have their lunch. And I said, It's nice he's home, isn't it? And she said, Yeah. And she said, But you know, I miss his presence because he was always there. He was always watching. We always felt his presence. Max was known around the place. And I said, Yeah, I know. There was never a night when I went down to check the kennels out where he'd be, you know, on his bed and he'd see me come in and he'd race up to the door so I could give him a cuddle and have a play with him and stuff like that. There was always a ritual between him and I, like I just didn't go down there without saying hi to him during the night. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if it was nighttime, like it was kind of like when Remy's here, Remy insists that I go and see him. I just have to look at Remy. That's all he needs me to do. He doesn't require to be touched or patted or anything like that. He just needs me to go over and say hi, Remy and stand at the door. And then he's kind of like, Hey, and then he trots off. Well, Max was very similar, you know, like he had a ritual where Like sometimes he'd bring his ball up. So I'd go and have a bit of a tug with the ball and everything like that. But his presence is missing. He's gone. One of the sentinels at Dural here where we work is gone and we notice it. We feel his presence is no longer here. And that's going to take a little time to get used to that because I think when you're used to something and you're comfortable with something and it seems to have, it has a place in the life of where you are and what you're doing. And when it's gone, everybody knows. We all feel it. I just want to really extend some heartfelt thanks to the staff for everything they did, all the care they gave him, the round the clock attention, the attention to detail when he required it, everything that they did was exceptional. Thank you. If any of you are listening to this, just know that if I didn't express it personally, which I, I feel I did, but if I didn't, I just want you to know how much it did mean to me. And it meant to everybody else who cared about him as well.
1: Yeah, man. Acknowledging the dog's life and contribution, super important. Mm. And then, you know, back to our original question, she says, specifically, I'm looking for ideas and thoughts on the imposter syndrome that comes with not having a personal dog anymore. Also, any help on how to interact with clients. It feels weird to use him as an example for stories, but mentioning it just seems like a mega unnecessary bummer. I don't know that I have any, like, really good specific advice on that beyond, yeah, fuck, I don't know. I don't know that I can contribute very well there. I've never been to people's place or acted as a dog trainer without having a personal dog at the time.
0: On that topic, when we were reading it out before we went to where, and it only came up tonight funnily enough, but we thought it was a a good enough one to talk about because it's something that we have seen circulating around in forums before and it's certainly discussion points that you, me, and a multitude of people in the industry have had. It's a constant thing, right? It is. It's something everybody in the
1: industry has to deal with.
0: Mm. I feel that... Having a connection with people, regardless of you have a dog or not, but if you had a relationship with a dog and people can share in that with you, then I think that sometimes that can give credibility in any situation. Let's say, for example, you don't have a dog right now because you had a dog that passed recently and it may be A, inconvenient to have another dog right now or B, too painful to go ahead and just replace the dog immediately. Nonetheless- There were times where Harley was a big part of my lifestyle and he was enormous. Like he was bigger than Ben Hur when he was alive. He was a little bit of a, I don't want to say this in a tacky format, but he was a kind of like a celebrity dog in our arena. And it might've been big fish, small pond sort of thing, but a lot of people knew him and he was a pretty well-known dog and he helped me with my career. So when he wasn't there, again, you know, like when I was talking about Max, how a big presence was gone and a lot of people realized, Harley's dead. He's gone. He's not here anymore. And I didn't know how I was going to feel about that because Harley, he catapulted me. He helped me. I became a part of who I am because of him. And when that was over, I thought, holy shit, I'm a one-man show now where I relied on a two-man show with this gig. For all of my life, I was really needing this dog to show what I can do to express what I'm capable of. Like people can see who I am and, and what I am because I've got this magnificent relationship with this fantastic dog. But then he died. Unfortunately, our dogs do. I did have trouble with that for a period of time. Like I did think, how am I going to relate to people now that I haven't got this magnificent dog and I've got other dogs, but they can't do the same things that Harley could. Like Harley was exceptional compared to them. He was just a really brilliant dog, but I did have dogs, so I didn't have an empty space, but I just thought to myself, how am I going to demonstrate and express what I want the client to know and do where I don't have the dog to show them? Because I used to be able to bring Harley out and say, just like this, this is what I want Mm -hmm. you to do, just like this. And then people would say to me, oh, but that dog is amazing. But then I was able to tell them he never used to be like he was a pain in the ass, not a problem dog, but he had problems and he was a pain in the ass like other puppies and other juvenile dogs were. And it took incremental training. Mm. But then that's how I got into the conversation of this is how I can help you because I was a client and I started this training journey because of him and because of the things that he was doing that I needed some upskilling in. And then when he was kind of gone, because I used to do demonstrations. We were doing some TV work. And, you know, I had another younger dog there, Dutch, and I had Gammon, who was my female. and I mean, brilliant in their own ways, but they just – they weren't the same dogs as Harley. And this is recycling old information, but I did spend a period of time, especially with Dutch, trying to turn him into Harley. And then I realised he's not capable of being that dog. And everything that I'm doing is counterproductive to trying to turn him into that dog, and it's only – creating distance between him and I, like I'm not celebrating that dog or loving him for his individualism and who I can take him in a different area for different reasons. I was thinking, no, you have to become a product that I'm used to working with. I'm not going to say the actual people, but it's hard to say without making it so obvious. Maybe I need to change the construct of how I'm talking about this. When you've got, let's say for example, you're a celebrity family and one of the major people in that life disappears and then you realize, well, maybe I can make the children like the person who has left that spot vacant and there's now an extreme amount of pressure on those children now to try and fill the void of somebody who is a larger-than-life personality. And that's kind of mm. how I tried to transform Dutch into becoming Harley, but he was incapable of doing it. He wasn't as smart or as agile or as fearless as Harley was. He had some great qualities about him and I loved him and I really appreciated him. He was a very fun dog to be around, but putting that amount of pressure on him was just ridiculous. But getting back to the clients, once I realised this and once I understood, you know, I have a void here, I don't have the dog that I'm used to relying on and scooting by on his good work. One thing I did find though which I think I need to express to people is because Harley was so good towards the end. He also made me a little lazy as a trainer. I didn't have to Mm. push him hard anymore to do anything. He would just do everything I needed him to do. So primarily I could just basically stand there and give a few lazy gestures where that's what I forgot about having my other dogs was you need to do the work. Like you need to get busy and you need to get involved in what you're doing with the dogs because they're not in that later phase that the other dog was. Like Harley was in such a generalized proofing phase that there was not just, there wasn't much of his regular routine that just wasn't automated. It was just so easy for me to do it in the end because it had been rigorous training over many years. And that dog knew the game was a testimony to what a magnificent boy he actually was, but man, it was easy towards the end. Unfortunately it did make me lazy It didn't make me have to push myself. It didn't make me have to push him anymore because it was all there. But then when I realized Dutch can't fill that spot and I have to get busy again, that helped me and it rekindled me and it it sort of lit the fire under me that it's a new beginning. It's a new dog. It's a new shaping process that I had to do. But speaking with the clients, again, the loss of Harley and getting back on track with this story. People appreciated sharing the story of me of some of the magnificent things I did and remembering the journey that I was on because I forgot about things like that as well. I didn't have to think about those sort of things anymore until he was gone. And then when he did go, I could start thinking about, he was a little prick when he was a puppy. He did used to chew things up and he did shit on the floor and he chewed a, a lounge room set that I had and he chewed the trimming off a, of a window in a rented house that I had so we had to get a carpenter to fix it all and replace a window that he ran through and you know he busted through a fence and screwed the female next door. Another dog, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but um all of those things was a normal part of the journey of owning a adolescent dog with a lot of drive and a big personality. And in a way, there are a lot of things that happen and a lot of memories and a lot of sometimes they do. Sometimes they they open right up and with Harley once I realized, and it was Dutch and Harley, like the chasm between the two of them, which created a big awareness principle for me. It's when my head sort of opened up and there was a lot of space filling in. I kept thinking to myself, I'm starting to come to terms with what I'm doing wrong here to Dutch, you know, to put him under that amount of immense pressure. Cause I primarily was just saying to Dutch work. You should just do it. You should just know this, mm. but I forgot. Yep. I forgot what I needed to do with Harley to get him there. And I forgot about all the people that helped me get there along the way. That for me was a good story to be able to share with people, to be able to sit down in their lounge rooms and talk about those sort of things with them. And I remember how appreciative people were because they realized, well, I'm not a fuck up then. You're a guy that's been in this now for 15 years because I think Harley lived to be about 12 you're a guy that's been in this for 15 years and you're telling me that you've had all these amazing fuck ups with your dogs. So I'm not a fuck up. I'm not a terrible dog owner and I'm not a terrible person and I'm not wrecking this dog. And I said, I used to think all of this when Harley was a young dog, I used to think I have no idea what I'm doing. I was literally reading books and watching, you know, old VHS, crusty old VHS tapes of how to do it and just walking down the park until I sort of, and until I had that relationship with Boyd and the people that I met through ADT. But during that time, the one thing that I was doing really well, which I was unaware of was how extensive his socialization program was because I was going out and taking him to shopping centers and he went everywhere with me. I'd just throw him in a in a little box sitting on the car seat next to me and drive him around all over the place and let him see things. And he'd have such a vast experience of the world. So all of the things that I thought I was going to turn into absolute turmoil, none of it happened. In fact, you know, like it was a blessing in disguise, something that I was so unawares of until later in my life when I actually had a thorough education on it and I knew about the extensiveness of what Scott and Fuller did to enrich our lives in owning dogs and why that was so important I had no idea about the critical period at that stage. It all sort of cascaded in over a period of time. And that combined with opportunity and education, everything sort of just amalgamated in the middle. And I thought, this is amazing. It was just sheer fucking good luck that this happened, but I was enthusiastic back then. I was bitten by the bug of training, but don't feel that you're a phony or a fraud because you haven't got a dog with you right at the time. I've met some great dog trainers who are in between dogs and, Same sort of thing, you know, they can recap and relive some of the amazing things that they've done with their dog. And the main thing is with your clients, as long as you're providing a good service and you can actually help them with their dog, with the problem that they've got right there, and you can incrementally head them in the right direction, that's a wonderful thing as well. Also, As we've discussed so many times, I think if you get into a situation where you realize that you do need to refer it on to somebody else, there's no shame in that as well. I think we've expressed that clearly as well. So I'm pretty much a clear believer of don't let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities. I think that's a good saying that's helped me get through life fairly unscathed and help other people that I've been working with as well. It doesn't mean ambition's not a great thing and it doesn't mean that you can't learn and you can't be better and you can't add to more of who you are and what you're capable of doing. I mean, I've some of the people that I've had the good fortune of meeting either in person or via Zoom, they're incredible people with great stories and they're capable of doing so much when they feel motivated and they want to express themselves. It's a wonderful thing to see. And I think this is one of the things that Being in this industry and having these dogs and having been involved with so many of these people that we're sharing this space with is that you do get to see people accelerate into areas that maybe they were unclear that they were capable of doing. But it's just something they become mildly obsessive with and very passionate about they become artists, so to speak. They become something that working with a dog is their canvas and they are just expressing themselves in ways and shapes and things that have never been seen. Well, they're seen, but they're seen differently. Like each person is a different type of artist. Like even when you watch somebody painting, the myriad of ways that people can express themselves through a painting, I've seen people express themselves that same way through a dog before. And just because – You know, it's kind of like you, Pat, just because you spent a lot of time with Bart, it didn't mean you became Bart. It helped you become the necessity of who you're becoming in the industry because you've spent time with a master, you know, like you're learning to express yourself and shape yourself in your own way and become Pat Stewart. And this has to happen. The masters need apprentices and the apprentices need to become masters. And that's the way this wonderful industry needs to work. And this is the way that it needs to flourish is that, the old masters need to sit on the hill at the end of their time and look down and say, I'm pretty fucking proud of that. I'm pretty amazed mm. that I've had a hand in that. But not only did I have a hand in that, but that student had the tenacity and the will to go forward and take it somewhere else. And that's quite exciting. It's not a threat to me. It's actually quite beautiful. I was a part of that story and now they're going to tell it a different way and it's still continuing. Like there's another chapter
1: in that book and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when you address it, like the more I think about it as you're talking, I think the idea that you feel like you're, you know, the imposter syndrome sort of creeps in because you're a dog trainer without a dog. There's plenty of dog trainers that don't have dogs. Right. I think that that's definitely something that I think people internalize and might feel that. And if it ever came up, I think that if anybody ever asked, like, how come you don't? I think that it is probably a good segue to talk about responsible dog ownership, right? And you say like, right now, it's not a good time for me to have a dog. I'm not, you know, exactly as you said there, like, you know, you might explain to people if if it ever came up and I almost couldn't imagine that it ever would, right? But you might say to people like, oh, you know, I lost my dog recently and I'm not in a place to be ready to take on a puppy at the moment, or I'm not emotionally ready to bring on another family member in that way. Like there's whatever your reason is for actually not getting another dog right away. Like just be honest about that. And I feel like that could alleviate any concerns that people have. And it should put, even if you have an answer like that up your sleeve, it should put you at ease that you're not in that imposter syndrome because you're not, if you're a dog trainer and you Made me think about that was like, you know, Bart hasn't owned a dog for a long time he only just got one again himself. Like he hasn't had a personal dog in many, many years. And we're talking about one of the best in the world that has had and trained many, many dogs and has famous dogs, didn't have a dog for quite a while. So I I feel like that's not something that you need to worry about. And it's it's an education opportunity if and when it ever comes up.
0: There are plenty of people that I know who have dogs who have never really done anything exceptional. That may be a misfortune of not knowing the right people or some people are just bone lazy. They sort of skate by on on what they're doing at the time, whatever it is, you know, like it's not for me to say you should be doing this or doing that, but I've known people who have had dogs and they're not being exceptional trainers and I know people who haven't had dogs and as you've said, they've been exceptional.
1: There's everybody yeah. in and out of that whole process. I think the other thing that I was thinking about as well while you were talking then, Glenn, is one of her concerns is that when she, a lot of dog trainers deal in stories, you tell personal stories to alleviate people's concerns and you know explain troubles you went through with your own dog in order to help people through troubles with their own. And she's concerned about having to tell, emotionally it feels weird to her to tell stories about a dog that's no longer with her and also then to frame that and use language that identifies and tells the people she's telling the story to that the dog is not alive and only has recently died is seems like a huge bummer to her and one of the things I think that you could probably do to get around that and it's something I do, Again, I was just kind of thinking about it as we go along. It's like, you know, I've got a lot of dogs that I've trained and some of them are mine and some of them are with me for a long time, some of them with me for a short time. And then also, you know, when you teach events and that kind of stuff, you get like one session with a dog and there's 50 people watching. And so the language that I end up using a lot of the time is I'll, I usually say, I had a dog once or I trained a dog once. And so when we're going to go on with the story, that's how I like to frame it. And you can then say, yeah, like, if it's, if this was the dog that got you into dog training and it's say your only dog you've ever owned, you can say, Oh, I had a dog once and then go on and tell the story. And then you could say another story. Oh, I had a dog once and go on and tell story. And now people don't necessarily need to know that it's the same dog. You've only had the one dog and you're telling the same story about the same dogs because, you know, that's how I often will explain things. I'll say, oh, I had a dog once and blah, blah, blah. And then I might explain something else and say, oh, I had a dog once. And it could be the same dog I'm talking about. Because I think that, you know, as an educator, referring to a specific dog, that dog and the reference to it is just a vehicle for you to, you know, carry out an explanation. And so giving the name of the dog and the history of the, of the dog beyond what is relevant to that you know, piece of education you're trying to pass on is often superfluous and, you know, is a detail that doesn't need to be in the story. So you can avoid that uncomfortableness of your own by having to, you know, say the dog's name and then tell people he's no longer with us and he just died recently and all that is you could just say, oh, I had a dog once that and then off goes your story. The other thing I think that is relevant as well, you know, a lot of people, they don't want to commit to another dog. Maybe they want to, you know, in the meantime, they want to wait till the right time you know, breed comes up or the right puppy from the right litter or whatever it is. But fostering dogs can be a pretty great way of doing that as well. And as a trainer, I feel like fostering dogs, I haven't done it in a long, long time. And even when I did, it was not in a traditional manner like people would expect in rescue. But having dogs come in, you fix a problem, you put them with someone else, like is great for accelerating your skill set. I, I we don't know this lady. She might have a super high skill set already. We don't know. But then you've got a dog. If that makes you feel better, you've got a dog that's in your care that you're training and you're preparing for its eventual life somewhere else. And it gives you a dog to use as a, you know, a a dog for dealing with your activity and that kind of stuff, right? Like if that dog can be suitable for it. I think that's the big gap that can come of dog trainers when they don't have a personal dog is that for the most part, especially in home pet behavior modification stuff that can be the big kick to the dick is not having a dog that can help you with that. I feel like that can be a really tricky thing for a lot of people in the industry. And when I was doing a lot of that kind of work, I actually found that really stressful because of how much I relied on Valerie to help me with that kind of work. And there would be often times where I got paid for a lot of dog training. I didn't do because Valerie did it. Mm -hmm. Like I've done a lot of puppy stuff. I've, recovered some puppies that had like really bad issues in the critical period. I've helped dogs gain strength when they didn't have it before. I've socialized dogs. And a lot of the work that I've done in that space that I took the money for, Valerie actually did the work, right? Like she was the one that was able to recover some puppies. She was the one that was able to give some puppies a smackdown. She's the one that I trust to put in front of any dog under any circumstances. And I know that she will not worsen that dog's situation, right? Like she will help me in that. And, and it used to stress me a lot when I was doing that. And that was my you know my primary source of income for a long time was dealing that kind of stuff every day it made me really concerned thinking if anything happens to her i can't do this and a lot of the you know a lot of the traits that go into that are genetic and i can't replicate this that was something that i used to think about quite a lot was because i didn't train her to be like that and i wouldn't know how to train a dog to be like that even if i tried i think that you know she grew up with sam's gwen's super powerful dog and you know like a certain gwen sets a certain expectation of the dogs that will live with her so valerie's personality would have been massively shaped by gwen and the way that she interacts with other dogs would have been shaped by gwen and there's no way like she would be responsible for a chunk of remy's personality and every dog that i've had that's been a puppy under her and there's been plenty but I can't replicate that. Like if something were to happen to her, I can't I can't just get another dog that can do that for me. And that stresses me out. It stresses me out to think about in future, like I will need her to perform tasks like that. And she does regularly with puppies at the moment, like not, not so much the in-home behavior stuff, but with working dogs, especially ones that I'm raising or I'm helping other people train. Valerie's an important part of it. And not having a dog like that in the business would be difficult for me. It would be really hard. It would really set me back. And so- In her question in our group, that that doesn't come up, but it's definitely something worth thinking about. And and it's one of the reasons like I know that a lot of people don't like to double stack dogs. That can be a really, you know, that's sort of a term a lot of people don't like, but having a, a younger dog and an older dog together so that you're never without a dog is something to consider. It's too late in this circumstance, but I think it's something to consider going forward. For a lot of people as a dog trainer, if your dog is a critical part of the business, you really- essentially do have to double stack them. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying there because I'm, as you are talking about all that, I'm thinking about how wonderful and easy it's been for me to raise Macho that I've got Randy to help me raise him. Randy's been mentoring him incredibly. Like he's helping him be strong and confident and powerful. You know, the other day, it was a while back now, but I was getting Randy to jump on the bonnet of the old PSA car that we've got on the back. And I had Macho back tied, well, because he, he was only a puppy and I didn't want him jumping up and down on it without assistance. So I allowed him to jump up on it while I helped him and he helped him get up there and so forth. But he wanted to do it because he saw Randy do it and he's basically looking at going, well, my big brother's doing it. I'm doing it. But now mm-hmm. because of that, there is no hesitation in him. It's not something that I really had to expressly and incrementally teach him to do because he's always had the confidence to want to do it because he saw Randy do it. And, you know, like other things I was doing with him the other day where I was getting him to open the car door and I was getting him to run through while I had a wedge on the other side so he'd come barreling through and bite it. And just it's all things that I think were really so much easier because I had that nanny dog there with him. Like I don't want to call Randy a nanny dog, but he effectively did. He nannied macho into adulthood. He's just helped him and he's expressing his confidence and that's been very developmental throughout the stages of having him. So it's been a considerable load off my mind to to have to bring this dog up, having my own dog help and assist me to do it.
1: Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing it It, because there's so many sort of dog traits like socializing and that kind of stuff that if you you don't have a dog already – you're kind of behind able because you're, you're rolling the dice. You need other people around. You need those dogs. Like, you know, like how many times have we met at the club? Someone turns up with a puppy that's just a boisterous young bully Malinois and you can say, oh, just put him with Remy or Randy or either and we know like he'll just correct him. He'll just show – like it will just be safe. He'll just show like, hey, don't be a dickhead and he'll teach him right here, right now how to behave appropriately around other dogs. And if you didn't have that – Then you're going to public spaces and you don't know how the dogs are going to react around there. And you don't know how the people are going to react. Like it, it would be a disaster having to basically teach a dog how to be respectful and behave appropriately around other dogs that are also powerful without having safe reliable ones there to do it mm. i mean everybody the amount of people that i get called by you know industry people are like hey i need to borrow valerie for a day and <laughs> it's because they've got like a puppy that's being an asshole or whatever and it's like oh mama jugs have to come over and, and just teach this puppy <laughs> what's appropriate without that i'm, I'm always like yes yeah, sweet no worries we'll come over and without that that's a really hard thing to fix like mm. a really inappropriate dog for you as a trainer trying to reinforce, and then it's a little puppy. So you don't want to be cranking on them. You don't want to be like big corrections or whatever, but to show that puppy like hey this is appropriate dog behavior a lot of people miss that window and then boom tish suddenly you got an adolescent or an adult dog that's now totally inappropriate around other dogs and he might be friendly or whatever but he's going to be acting appropriately he's going to get corrected and he never having been corrected as a young dog by other dogs is now going to think that he's in a fight and it's going to escalate out of control and this is where like so much of the dog on dog reactivity and aggression that we see is, you know, grows from inappropriate socialization or lack of socialization with other dogs young. Mm. Mate, we're so lucky that we have a plethora of dogs in our network that you can trust to do that, right? Like I can just, no worries, bring your dog in. Remy's off leash, Randy's off leash. They can even be in the same room off leash together. No big deal. Two adult male intact biting dogs they're kind of weirdos, the pair of them together. They just ignore each other. Hey, they're like, they, it's almost like they, they don't acknowledge each other's existence, which is perfect. That's exactly what you want from dogs in that situation. And you can say to people, yeah, bring in your puppy. Unclip the leash. Everything will be sweet. And if your puppy has a full go at my dog, he'll give him a correction and sort it out. I'm sure that Remy is able to do that because he had Valerie that taught him how to act appropriately. Like, you know, he's a knucklehead. He's a, he's a lunatic without having been taught that as a puppy, he would be a disaster of a dog around other dogs. Had he not had that imprinting from her. So, yeah, that's a tricky one. And like, fortunately in her question, she doesn't address that as an issue. So maybe that's not the kind of work that she does. So that that's probably lucky. The last part that she says here is also tips on how to just keep going. I understand it's different per the individual, but I'd love to hear your personal stories if you're willing. Well, you've given a bunch of personal stories. I think from my point of view, what I would say on that is you kind of have no choice, right? Like just keep going is you've answered it yourself. Like live happily with the memory of that dog. Think about the fullness of that dog's life. You know, one of the things I say to people a lot is I say that, and it's usually when people have made a mistake with a dog, people are worried or, or when they when they come into the working dog world and they, they want to succeed and they immediately make some mistakes with their dog, you know, like everybody does. And I always say to people that every dog is practiced for the next one, right? And so I love the dogs that I have and I give them the very best of what I'm capable of, but I'm aware that a lot of the things that i teach when i tell people don't do this with a dog one of the reasons i can so confidently say you shouldn't do that is because i have and i've watched the the problem like four years later manifest and so you know my dogs now are pretty well trained but like every dog that i have had or that i do train is better than the one that was before because it's the compounding interest that i've gained from the the skills from the dog before so that's kind of my advice in that space you know is that when you think about going forward think about the lessons that you learned from that dog and you you know in her question she she asks about you know telling stories of the dog so obviously and she mentions that the dog is what got her into training so i think obviously that that dog did teach her a lot and that dog was the development of her foundation skills. And now every dog that you train after that is kind of a tribute to your own dog. Like every dog that you train is going to, the skills that you pass on, the techniques that you teach, the things you can identify because you've seen it before, all of that falls onto the shoulders of your dog that's passed and that got you into this. And that's a tribute that you'll pay to that dog for the rest of your career. Every dog you'll remember, you know, in 10 dogs time you'll remember where it started and the basics that you learned on your first dog you're going to remember you know how you implemented those and what you would change and and you'll be forever thankful to that dog for having been that helper for you that started your career so That's my advice on how to just keep going. I do think about that quite a bit with my first Mally. I'm really thankful to him that he was the shit show that he was. (laughs) I think like for me personally, if when I had decided, yeah, I'm going to go out and get one of these dogs. And if he had been what I had paid for, if he had been what I wanted, dog training would have just been a flash in the pan hobby. I would have done it for a few months. It would have gone great. And then it would have been on the shelf and it was because of him. And it was because of the challenges that I had to face and overcome. And then the skill set that I had to develop that we're here having this conversation now, and that my whole life has completely altered. And so when I think on that dog, you know, I reflect there's a lot of sad moments. I miss him a lot. There's a lot of, I really, truly deeply love that dog. And he came to me, you know, I had him at a really difficult time in my life when I broke my back and was staring down the barrel of having to leave the army and that kind of stuff. And so he was a, an emotional crutch for me for sure. But when I think of him, I think of him fondly in, Like this is a dog that started all of this Mm. for me. And I think about, man, I like learned some awesome techniques on that dog. And then I think about other stuff and I think, man, I fucked up that dog in so many ways. And I want to apologize to him in so many ways. Like there's a lot of mixed emotions around that, but all of it is positive because I, you know, it's gross product is positive or it's net product is positive because it shaped me into being the trainer that I am today. And all the skill sets that I have developed has been built upon the foundation of that first dog. And so it's a huge debt to him.
0: I put up something, before I say that, I just want to acknowledge that because I sort of knew you towards the end of Ryder's life. That's sort of how we met through that dog. And you and I were sort of connecting more towards the end of his life. So I remember us having the conversation about his end of life. And it was a, yeah, it was a tough time for you. I knew you were pretty devastated about it as most dog people are when it's that time to have that conversation. However, if we're going to get involved in this business, that's one of the things that we have to understand is that we're going to, if we're lucky and we're healthy ourselves and we're in good condition, we're going to outlive these dogs probably six or seven to one by the time you sort of stack up on all the dogs that you have through all the animals you have on your life, maybe even more. It's a reality of it. I wouldn't say it's a grim reality of it because I've heard people explain it as a grim reality, but it's not really. It's amazing reality that you get to share in, as you said before, when Remco was a baby and you got a picture of him from day one and you got to be a part of that selection process and then having him from eight weeks old until however old he is now. Norrell said to me the other day, oh, do you realise Macho is going to be one at the end of October? And I said, are you shitting me? Like it's already, he's going to be one year old. I still remember when I got him off hash and brought him home and I was teaching him to stand up on the wobble board and, you know, all sorts of things when he was just a little baby. And ever since he was 10 weeks old, I taught him how to piss on a, um, a piece of paper anytime I put it around there. And I used to marvel at how quickly he'd pick things up. He was a funny little dog with a crazy little personality. And that felt like only yesterday that he was that tiny little pup and it's already one year old and he's the same size as Randy. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. I just wanted to share something that I I shared on social media the other day, but I shared it on an Insta story, so it it came and went within 24 hours. But I liked it. It's a picture of Gandalf sitting there smoking his pipe and the words say, when you really pay attention, everything is your teacher. Some of these Mm. sayings, you know, there's a lot of really profound, really deep, meaningful sayings and I love that one. I thought, you know, it's so goddamn true. There are so many things that you learn a lesson from if you're open to the lesson of what you're capable of taking away from it. Like if you can put aside the hurt, if you can put aside the disgust or something, there is a lesson in everything. I've missed the point of the lesson at the time sometimes. Fortunately, I've had the good fortitude or even a good friend at the time who has brought me around to the understanding of what that lesson was. And I think these things are important, not just in the later stage of life, but at any stage of your life. If you can focus on the clear intention and the authenticity of some of those lessons, I think they really transform you into becoming the person that you're capable of being. One of the things that helps you sharpen the tip of the spear and helps you start to develop self-mastery and whatever that may be. And that doesn't mean that you have to be the best in the business. It just means that you're a better person today than what you were yesterday. All of those sage advices that I've heard people give throughout time have been comforting because I find that there are often other words of wisdom that from people that are reflective of times where things aren't going so well in your life or you are struggling as this young lady is probably doing a little bit at the time. And sometimes it just helps redefine where you can go. It helps light a fire underneath you and sometimes gets the spaghetti boiling, as Bart likes to say, you know, like you've got to get that water boiling sometimes. And some of these things, some of, these, mm. some of the things that I've heard from Birdie, some of the things I've heard from you, some of the things I've heard just from people in waffling along in Clubhouse, and they'll have a moment of clarity where you just think, holy shit, that's just something that for some reason that right here, right now, I just happen to be a collision of perfect timing. You know, when I was here and that person said that thing or did that action that inspired me to rethink or reshape or refocus where I am right now, I have incredible gratitude to anybody that I've been able to glean any of those magnificent parcels of advice from them because they've really helped me get out of a situation or even recreate myself when it's time that I had to do something like that. For anybody else who's had those moments themselves, it's incredible good fortune to be in the right place at the right time to have that happen.
1: Mm, totally. Mm.
0: I did want to thank a lot of people who reached out to me and Pat, you were saying before that when we were talking about it, that people had reached out to you before about the last episode we did like a world without tools. I wasn't quite Mm. sure how people would feel about that because we're talking about subject matter that pinches nerves with some people, but even people that were from the plus R community reached out and felt that we did it a good service and that we were very fair on what we were speaking about. And we're very thankful for handling a delicate topic with some credibility And that was nice. It was really well received and I'm really grateful to have people that A, listen to us and B, also offer feedback. Sometimes it's not the exact feedback you want, but nonetheless, it's feedback that you need. But in this situation, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of really appreciative people A lot more than usual, which I kind of thought when we were doing the episode, I was thinking, oh, you know, I was listening to it in editing and I was thinking, I'm not sure how people are going to feel about this. Maybe it's going to twist some nipples in some uncomfortable (laughs) ways, but (laughs) it it didn't appear to do that. It may have. There may be people who were silent about it who thought, oh, you dickheads. But the people that did speak out, which were more than usual, were very kind. Their feedback was nice. Uh, They were appreciative. And it was also very reflective in the statistics as well. So saw a big bump in how many people listened to it. We actually got a, quite a rise out of it. So thanks, guys. It's always nice to yeah, know that we've confessed that there are times where this episode, this was done on the spur of the moment. We read that comment and we thought, yeah, let's talk about that. So there are times where Pat and I mm. will sit in preparation and think, what should we riff on today? And that happened to be one of them, and it was well received. So thanks. I appreciate it. I'm sure you do as well.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. Alright, I'm wrapping it up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe. Tell a friend in real life. Share it on your little Insta story. Glenn will then share it and we'll just like be sharing each other all over the place. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. I put some stuff into there the other day. You yeah, know, just a little bit of stuff going on in the zeitgeist and I thought I want to answer this question for people that care. And I made a video real quick and put it in there explaining, you know, certain things that certain training techniques. So that's in there. And plus, you know, there's different tiers. You can, there's access to a live once a month and all kinds of stuff. And don't forget that if you want to, you could buy Glenn or I, mostly me, a Lamborghini if you wanted to.
0: i would be happy with a
1: PRS.
0: Paul Reed Smith, 35th anniversary, 24 fret. Okay.
1: Yep. That's me. That's what I'll you're ha- Yeah, I'll live happy with that. Put that in the passenger seat of my Lamborghini, deliver them both. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be great. The other way to support the show is Teespring. Jump into there, get yourself some cool merch. You can rep the show, maybe a wall tapestry, some socks, some underpants, that kind of thing. Uh, and if you want to ask questions, like, you know, this the topic for today came from our discussion group. Again, I didn't mention her name just because – she didn't, know, she didn't ask for this to be a topic and didn't suggest it as a topic. She wanted a discussion group, which is not a public group. So that's why I didn't say your name, just so you know. But if you do have something that you think is a worthwhile topic, feel free to discuss it in there. We're so open to suggestion. And there's a lot of uh, really good dog training information that gets shared in there. I was really pleased the other day. Someone tagged me in a post asking for some advice and I had a good read of the other answers by the time I got to get to it. And there were some really great answers in yeah. there. So really happy with that group and how people can port themselves in there. Yep. If you want to speak privately to me and Glenn, the best way to do that is to shoot us an email. We are info at the That's it. Goodbye.